This is Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff. Hola, hola. Soy Carla. It's Rachel here. What's good, y'all? I'm Ashraf. And I'm Madeline. Why Change is a podcast that brings listeners around the globe to learn how arts, culture, and creativity, especially as applied by young people, can change the world, one community at a time. You're invited each week to learn and laugh while exploring the question, why change? All right, let's get started. Welcome to this episode of the Why Change podcast. My name is Jeff M. Poulin, and I am your host, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Jacobs, coming to us from Sydney, Australia. Rachel, how are you? I'm really well, Jeff. It's really good to hear from you. I'm in Gadigal land in the Eora Nation in what was, is, always will be Aboriginal land, and it's just really fantastic to catch up with you. Absolutely. It's lovely to to see your face here on camera and hear your voice here on the podcast. I know that it is a spanning of of almost a day between us. I'm starting my day, you're ending your day, but I love uh, just receiving those messages that that we'll get started in just a moment because you came from uh, a Lyra class and, you know, really practicing your your own artistry to even bookend your day where I just woke up and had coffee. So uh, <laughs> how are things going in your in your world with everything that you have going on? Pretty good. It's really interesting that you say that. Yes, I do actually tend to practice my artistry every day because I am a working artist. I'm very proud to be. And I have to say very lucky to be at the moment and in Australia. COVID hasn't affected us in the way it's affected many corners of the world. So we are still able to be practising artists in a very, very similar sense to um, the way that we were pre-COVID. And I think it's really important that we're always mindful that we are um, a privileged group of artists here and see what we can do to reach out to those around the world who aren't maybe having um, as glorious a time as we are practising our artistry. And so I think that's one of the big missions that I'm on is to say, okay, Um, Australia's good fortune is worth absolutely nothing if we can't share that with people around the world. So what is it that we can do to to lift others in this time of great need? Absolutely. I I fully hear that. And, you know, it's interesting. When you were just sharing this perspective, it brought me back. I've been listening to a bunch of podcasts lately. I've been doing a lot of driving for for work and, and other things. And I listened to the new podcast from former President Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen called Renegades. And they were talking about this idea of sort of using their privilege, one as a, you know, musician, very, very popular musician, and one as a former president to sort of elevate things from the needs of of communities and and average people. And it was really unique um, perspective that they shared in this one episode I was listening to recently where they talked about uh, the what they viewed as a responsibility of the younger generation to be pushing sort of the older generations. And that if younger folks weren't innovating and doing things that made their elders a little bit uncomfortable or maybe questioning, that they weren't really doing their job. And I just thought it was such an interesting perspective for two people who have that privilege that you just discussed to say, you just almost issue that challenge and say, okay, great, push it further. You know, I know I've done some stuff, but like you do it even better, um, issuing sort of a call to, to action for the younger generation. And it really just, 
it struck me, particularly in thinking about what's happening here in my world in the US and some of the stuff that's happening in your world over there in Australia, um, that this idea of sort of redefining the the roles and how we push each other towards progress between generations was something I just thought was a great way to end my Sunday, certainly, when I was listening to it. Yeah, it makes you really introspective, doesn't it, to think about what is the role of, um, what what's the role of youth in Why Change? And what's, I know that creative generation, definitely you consider youth to be a giant piece of the puzzle. And I really think that their job as agitators is really vital. However, the other side of the coin is, that I yearn from the day when young people can just be young people. You know, when Greta Thunberg is bellowing us that she should be at school and she should be learning, she shouldn't have to be leading um, the world's climate strikers in this, you know, radical role. She's absolutely right. You know, our young people should have that space and, and we should be getting off our asses without them having to set it on fire uh, so while I absolutely love their role as radical agitators, it's actually up to older generations to make sure that no young person should ever have to be in that position. You know, you're right. You just you just expanded my thinking exponentially by saying that I I feel like we need to schedule a debate, right? To to talk about the this dilemma, right? Of how how do we, particularly me, I feel like I you know, and I don't want to speak for you as well, but I, I would put you in this category, at least from my viewpoint, that we sort of sit in this between role where we are no longer the young people, but we're certainly not the elders of the field. So how do we strike that balance? How do we hold that tension in a way that's appropriate to allow young people to just be young people and learn and explore and imagine, but then also to allow them to take on the leadership roles when necessary, when they feel so empowered. That's an interesting, I'm going to have to think on that one a whole Let's lot. Let's set more. that up because, because I, I want some more answers on this as well. You know, I want to know when to hold space and, and when I'm actually asking for them to do too much labor, you know, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's really important. Same with our elders. When can they share their wisdom and when do we need to, when are there times where you need to say actually the things that we used to do really aren't working anymore? Absolutely. You know, starting this podcast conversation off with a bang of big questions to ponder. I love it. Uh, this is exactly what I want at, at 8.45 in the morning when we're recording this. Um, <laughs> now, let's start off my week in a really great way, I think. You know, actually, one of those elders that that I always think of in our sector that comes to mind is Eric Booth. And this is a name that has been mentioned a number of times on the podcast, a number of co-hosts know Eric and work with Eric. And you just had a conversation with Eric. So tell us a little bit about the interview that you did. Well, Jeff, uh, when this was sort of proposed, I was so, so excited because it a little bit means that I've come full circle. So I'm going to start out by saying that I know Eric. And I'm also going to start out by saying, as a podcast listener, an avid podcast listener, there's an element of annoyance that you get when two the interviewees know each other and have all these in-jokes and it's a back-slapping competition and things like that. I was really mindful that I didn't want to go into that this podcast that way. But 
here's why it's sort of come full circle. Now, this could come off as a tale of great privilege and things like that, but I'll just couch it by saying a couple of years ago, it was 2019, and I saved up for years and years and years because I wanted to go to New York and do the Lincoln Centre's Leadership Academy. And I um, scrimped and saved and threw everything I had at that because I thought that would be some once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Yeah, and guess what? That opportunity is not actually available at the moment. So um, so it was really fantastic. And I have to admit, when I found out that Eric Booth, one of the fathers of teaching artistry, one of yeah, the forefathers of our field, one of the pioneers um, of socially connected art and art education, when I found out that he was hosting my leadership academy and there were just going to be 25 of us in the room and his leadership, I did the little happy dance because I thought this is me actually getting really, really close to the source. In Australia, you know, it's a great global north privileged Western nation, but you are actually a little bit isolated. Um, that all of these, you know, big institutions and big movements seem to happen a fair way away from you. And here was my opportunity to kind of get in on the action and to ask deep questions, to ask hard questions. And so that's where I really learned a lot about what makes Eric Booth tick and a little bit about. I guess, the genealogy of where I come from as well. Um, what kind of trains of thought led to the kind of work that I do? It influences what I do working in communities, working in community arts, in arts education, in my role as an academic, whether I'm conscious of it or not. It, the work of people like Eric has influenced my work and it was really, really great to see that in action and also to ask some deep penetrative questions as well. Absolutely. This is a fantastic interview. I loved listening to it. So why don't we give our listeners a chance to listen, and then we'll come back on the other side to discuss. Well, good morning and good evening, everyone. It's Rachel Jacobs here coming to you from Gadigal land in the Eora Nation, which you know as Sydney in Australia. And I acknowledge that I'm on land that is Aboriginal land. It was, is, always will be Aboriginal land. This land was never ceded. And I acknowledge the elders past, present and emerging. And I am here interviewing the amazing Eric Booth. Eric, it is so wonderful to have you here. Eric is an actor on and off Broadway. He's a publishing professional and author of seven books, including Tending the Perennials, which is going to come up in our conversation today, The Art and Spirit of Personal Religion, uh, which is just a fascinating topic. He's a renowned arts educator, an arts education leader, and one of the great pioneers of teaching artistry. It's such a pleasure to have you. So, Eric, firstly, where are you and how are you? Oh, thank you. Thank you, Rachel. And thanks for this podcast. Why change? The world needs that question answered in lots of ways. I am at my home in the Hudson River Valley. I get to live on a nature preserve and it is the full burst of spring right now. And so the how am I? I, like so many, have felt flattened by the last pandemic year like I'm living a two-dimensional life that's just about pushing stuff around. 
And as the sap is rising in the trees outside my window here, and as the daffodils are in full explosion, I start to feel it rising in me too. There's a sense that where I'm at right now is at a sense of fresh hopefulness after the darkest period I've experienced in teaching artistry. Oh, it certainly has been a time, Eric. It's been a time all over the world. I'm here in Australia where we got through relatively unscathed, uh, but and we're now heading into our autumn and winter, which we're in the opposite end and things are starting to darken and, and cool off and things like that. But it's really wonderful to hear that sense of renewal in your voice and, you know, see that blossoming and blooming around you. Because what I do know from meeting with you and learning, I guess, at your feet is that you're an incredibly hopeful person. And you're always looking forward and into the future. Is that something you'd agree with? Uh, yeah, I would say it's partly character and it's partly privilege in mm. that I've had the good fortune to, this doesn't sound like good fortune, to never have a job. Mm. So I got to find my way into lots of opportunities and experiments. And I'm just addicted to starting new stuff and being around the pioneering edge of things. So um, I've had had a, the good fortune of a lot of decades of being around the, the breaking edge of our field. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. So I had the amazing opportunity to meet you. Uh, and it was one of those things that, yes, was definitely part privilege. But I saved all my money for years and years and years because I wanted to come to the Lincoln Centre to do their uh, the Leadership Academy and to be in New York for two weeks. It was definitely one of the great turning points in my life. And I have a confession to make that when I found out that you were leading that leadership academy I did the little happy dance because I thought this is really fantastic I had another confession to make that over those two weeks when I got to know you I started saying how does this guy not have a job and how can I be like that as well so I want to ask you you have such a passion for opening new spaces for artists both experienced and emerging um and encouraging people to flourish and lead and be that pioneer into new spaces. Tell me about your passion for that kind of work. Well, I dis I was lucky to discover it early. I am um, mm. I I you know kind of had the artist track, the tunnel track of conservatory training to be a Shakespearean actor, and it fed right into what was supposed to be the career that I was wanting. You know doing Broadway shows, doing shit, stuff all the time. And I found I didn't like it very much. It felt, you know, it almost felt masturbatory. Playing for the art club, um, you know, pleasing the art club, being run by the standards of the arts club, even sometimes the art club at its best. And when I'd had the opportunity for a first chance at teaching artistry, which I didn't know anything about, on the very first day with a group of 10-year-olds in Harlem, I got a bigger hit of the power of art than I did playing the same show eight times a week downtown on Broadway. And so I, I kind of got a hit of how potent the arts are beyond just the standard 
art club, arts industries game. And I, I loved it enough that I want to put it all my time into the good fortune of being at a field that was just starting to discover itself so that I could like contribute things. I mean, I could actually make a difference. My God, I could like make up something and it helped people. And I could like help start a project that no one had ever tried before. And the point I want to make for your listeners, especially for creative generation listeners, Mm -hmm. that period is not over. In fact, the pandemic has accelerated change by by kind of wiping out a whole lot of the standard way we thought it was going to be, it is opening up an opportunity for change. And so this notion of just boldly going for it in, I mean, you're the classic example of that, Rachel, just going for it. Uh, and you mentioned have mentioned this in the past, and I, it's true for me too. People think you know, oh my gosh, he started all those things. How did he do it? <laughs> yeah. We have a really low batting average. Uh, the only reason I got to start a lot of things is because I tried 20 times as many more, 19 of every 20 of which failed. Mm. And that's the message for creative generation right at this time is putting stuff out there that you're passionate about and that you have a good hunch, a good hunch. There's there's need and opportunity for this. Okay, and that failure, we talk about failure being really important in the arts and things like that, but I often wonder how much we live it. So I'm an academic, which is a field that, you know, we just talked about your um, um, form of, um, you know, performance and in Australia we call it an art rank. So in my world it's sort of an academic rank. Academic uh, worlds are predicated on success on you getting that grant, on you succeeding, on you getting a high amount of publications and blah, blah, blah. But we need to talk about more about those things that don't land, those things that result in, you know, what some people might call failure because it means that the one out of 20 that does succeed is going to be this massive, you know, success that changes lives because you've been through that journey, because you walked through that fire. Is that something you've experienced? Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, I look back, now I'm officially old, and I look back, and the highlights of the career are really around two things. One are what I call little golden ages, when a few colleagues and I were committed to a project that felt so right, and we were the right people, and they often they have a, only have a run of like four years or five years, there's like enough resource, and we're like doing some great stuff, and we love each other. Those are the, the high memories, that and breakthrough projects, of which there's maybe only been, I've maybe only had six or seven, but they, uh, they, were so meaningful to me as being able to offer something out of my meager bare-forked animal self uh, into a world that was receptive at a particular Mm. time. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Why don't you tell us about some of those projects, the ones that I guess stood out for you as being the ones that made a difference to you personally or the ones that you saw um, really brought people together in community? 
Um, sure. I, of course, I want to talk about the current ones because sure. <laughs> I'm always leaning forward. But uh, let me do a little history. Uh, okay. There was a beautiful time when we got to translate what we called aesthetic education, the kind of uh, teaching artist pedagogy we developed at Lincoln Center. I had the opportunity opportunity to turn it into a school. Like what would a whole school of that be? And we had researchers that could research it. And we had a school of teachers that said, yeah, let's go for it. And so there was like a five year run to explore what, you know, what does deep artistic engagement look like when it's engaged in all the subject matters? And this was before arts integration curriculum was much of a thing. And before we really knew much about this, we were just flying on instinct and excitement. So every day was a discovery and getting to sit beside kindergarten teachers for a day at a time and third grade teachers who would tell me I don't know anything about uh, managing a classroom. It just whooped all the bullshit out of me and got me so much clearer about how to bring that kind of learning into a real world setting. And then um, it kind of grew in some ways into an institutional thing that became a national project, but it, it kind of lost its, I don't know, its mojo at the same time. And so that little golden era phased out, but it actually, that one had a ripple effect in the world. That ripple effect in the world is, I guess, part of what makes it meaningful to you. And um, and that sounds absolutely amazing because the learning progression for yourself, I think, is so strong. I love that sometimes we don't come to the field as experts or very rarely we come as experts. We come as learners as well. And I think that you've really highlighted that. But let's go back to the ripple effect because this podcast is all about social change. We ask that big question of why change. And to go back to something you just said, it does feel like we're on the precipice of history. We're in the middle of a global pandemic, but we're in the middle of other pandemics as well. Black Lives Matters has highlighted the racial pandemic that plagues not just the US, but every um, every corner of the globe. We have a Black Lives Matters movement here uh, with our First Nations people um, that's highlighted some massive, massive problems and inequities. We're also on the edge of the climate crisis, which I know that you're doing some work on as well. How is teaching artistry able to make this distinctive contribution to the urgent need for change? Oh, thank you for setting me up with that question, because I think it is the most exciting one of our time. The why change question has been accelerated by the pandemic, because even, you know, the big, fat, well-funded arts institution industries, they don't know who they are right now and how they're going to regain their viability. Wow. And I mean, they're questioning, my God, is just getting butts in seats? Is that really all we've got? And so there is a questioning of, you know, what's called the value proposition of why, why do they exist? And here's a little story, because I think we're right on the edge of a major breakthrough, the biggest breakthrough in my lifetime. And the little story is my wife was invited to give a presentation to the World Bank uh, 
about how the arts could contribute to the sustainable development goals of the UN. Uh, so she spent a day there and made all kinds of presentations about the arts to different groups. She's a teaching artist. And at the end of that day, one of the directors said to her, you know, I have spent 25 years here dedicating myself to how to improve all the worst crises around the world. And this is the first time I have ever heard the word arts mentioned. And it is the first time I have ever had the thought that the arts might have something to contribute. And in the short pandemic period of time since that event two years ago, there have sprung up this mushrooming of organizations that are connecting the arts to actual real world crises. Uh, the one group I've especially working with called the Community Arts Network, their whole identity is arts for dot, dot, dot. What do the arts serve beyond just the people who love the arts? And we're right on the edge of starting to answer that question. And teaching artistry is the workforce that knows how to answer that question. I can't say we're fully well prepared to rush right into offering solutions to climate remediation and to health and wellness, but we are the workforce in the arts that knows how to work directly inside communities in ways that create change. What I've been really struck by uh, in the early stages of this is how naive most thinking in the arts is about arts for change, this sort of magical thinking that if you make a beautiful artwork that has a thematic connection to a major earth crisis, you've had a transformative effect and people, you know, if you fix, you've changed behaviors and beliefs. And that kind of magical thinking is what leaves us on the periphery of all the serious players that are really investing themselves in change. It's why we're seen as fluffies that aren't particularly useful. Teaching artists are the ones who know how to get into the, you know, the dirt of actual changing beliefs and behaviors. It's hard to change beliefs and behaviors. It doesn't happen in magical, inspirational moments. It takes time, it takes repetition, it takes investigation, and teaching artists are better prepared than anyone else in our field to work cross-sector to create the kinds of interventions that do actually start to make a real contribution towards those sustainable development goals. There's so many good points that you made, Eric, because firstly, viewing teaching artists and teaching artistry as a workforce that's able to create change is really a game changer. It moves from the fluff to something of substance, which, which it really is. And you've also highlighted that there are models of working in teaching artistry that aren't come in and do a magical show and then leave. It is about sustained engagement in a community. It is about working with that community, not imposing your will or your view of how it should be. Um, it really is to be quite led by the learners and led by that community. And that work is hard. 
uh, yeah, that works. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Out. And mm. the the kind of uh, I think the the touchstone of it or the philosopher's stone of it is the teaching artist credo that the number one job of a teaching artist is to activate the artistry of others. That's the power that actually creates change. It isn't the artworks we make. It isn't the charm we exude. It is activating this universal birthright power that has led to all human evolution for the last 300,000 years. Teaching artists are the workforce dedicated to that act. And when that power is activated, it can be channeled into any number of different outcomes, one of which is changing your beliefs and behaviors around climate change, let's say. Mm, mm, mm. And this is how we address the big questions. Now, we've got a lot of teaching artists and emerging artists who are listening at the moment, and they're thinking, I am part of this workforce, and I'm hoping that they feel inspired. But let's talk the real talk. What do you think are some threats to them at the moment? And what do you think are the support mechanisms that we need to put in place to overcome this stuff? Um, first, let's cop to the fact that our support mechanisms in this field suck. Yeah, they, they really do. always sucked. They aren't much better now. We're well-intentioned. We're kind. We're generous. But we have not created good pathways in. We've not created pathways for moving into greater power. Um, we have not helped our own, at least in the 40 whatever years I've been working on it. And it's uh, it's inexcusable. It, requ it, it requires so much more of an individual than it should. And I'm sorry. And we didn't get the breakthrough to the funding that creates structures. So I'm afraid we're still in the same situation where individuals have to undertake courageous and heroic endeavors to get themselves into the field. And they have to innovate and improvise their way to continue in the field. All of that apology done. Here's a couple of things I have found. One. Uh, two things have worked for me in finding work as a, a freelance person for 40 some years. And these two rules of thumb, I rec recommend to all young. Number one, work begets work. Most of the project work that develops comes from project work you have done. So if you have an interest area, start doing something. Draw the people in who care about it. Find a target, even if it's your family, just friends who runs a business and you, you want to try some kind of professional development to boost creativity in that business. Take whatever you've got because good work where you are learning, you're at your own learning edge. That is the thing that creates more work. So put it out there and by hook or crook, get working in the areas of your particular passion. And the second piece that works with that is that visibility counts. So make that work visible in whatever ways you can. Social media is one way, but there's a lot of other ways too. There's 
physically, I mean, how many times have people given talks to the Rotary Club and the local chamber of commerce and the local church where you can actually turn them on to a possibility that matters for them? Have joined the local ecological society because you've got an idea that can advance them. Um, publish articles, um, write essays, blogs, um, visibility counts. So there's two things and just a couple of warnings. Don't do it alone. Find colleagues and friends and stay connected to them. So you don't start thinking you're all on your own and that you get burnt out. Rely on support a small group of colleagues. And second, don't wait around. Don't think the work is gonna come to you. It's so true. Um... I just have an example of that. Last year when the pandemic shut down, most of my projects, most of my projects, art projects are in community. They're face-to-face, they're hands dirty and things like that, which is the life that I want to lead. So most of them did not go ahead last year. I wrote to a small organisation called UNESCO and said, hi, I've got some time on my hands. How can can I help? And they said, sure, we've got this report. Uh, We need some artworks analysed. And you sound like the woman for the job. And uh, my report has just come out from UNESCO analysing 218 artworks. And it was some of the most beautiful work that I could do from a desk at home. But it really did require, I guess, a bit of bravery and a little bit of initiative and a little bit of willingness to be laughed at, you know, to think I'll be laughed at out the door. But uh, it was one of the things that worked for me. Any any stories of right place, right time or you putting yourself in that position? Um, Yeah, there's a lot of stories like that. One of them connects to a project that just launched that I know you've heard about, the um, ITAC Impact Climate. ITAC, the International Teaching Artist Conference, was, was launched in an Oslo bar in 2012 when someone who had some money and some local clout and I said, well, what if we got teaching artists from around the world to come together here. She said, well, I got some extra money. Why don't we just try it? And the International Teaching Artists Conference was born out of, let's just go for it. I mean, let's just say to people, hey, do you want to come to this thing? And people from 26 countries showed up. So just putting it out there, not knowing, but man, if you hit a gusher, it'll carry you a long way. And with the ITAC now 10 years old, uh, I happened to be consulting with a group that was working on a climate project. And I said, gee, I wonder if ITAC could do a climate project that connects to your launch. Bingo, the largest project ITAC has ever had. So it's a matter of listening, grabbing, and like you just described with yourself, taking initiative, knowing most of the time you're going to fail, but if it's a good enough idea, you never know. You never know. And uh, by the way, that's really exciting work on the climate crisis front. So uh, I just can't wait to see how that turns out because, you know, that's that's a conversation that we really need to get right in the middle of. Just a little reminder as well uh, to link some bits of the conversation because we are drawing this conversation to a close uh, is to put yourself out there, but also don't do it alone. Take people with you. Can I encourage anyone who 
has uh, privilege and privilege as I do to take other people with you that some people might be listening to this and thinking I don't feel empowered to put myself out there for many, many, many structural reasons. I get it. I hear you. Um, and I think that's why it's always important to bring others along with you. Look at what power you have and how that can be shared. Um, so uh, in the UNESCO project, there was a young emerging scholar um, who was completely new to the field who came along with me and she now has a UNESCO report to her name. So there's a lot more that we can do in terms of supporting each other as well. I'm sure, Eric, would you would agree because I've seen you support literally thousands of people who don't have as much power as you over, over the years. There was a guy, I, you just remind me, a guy I heard from yesterday. Um, I met him in a workshop four years ago. He hadn't completed high school. He was full of art ideas. Um, I was on the phone with him a lot. I got him, he was able to get some jobs and he was just hired as the education director of one of the best youth arts programs in Boston. Uh, we do. We need to do this for each other, unrestrained. There's no limit to how much. You just do it all for everyone. I don't care how tired you are, um, because we haven't built an infrastructure. People support is our infrastructure. And if your listeners uh, check out ITAC, International Teaching Artists Collaborative online, you're going to find a lot of people around the world who are being who are going to be willing to connect with you and help lift you up and forward. It's so true. Lift up and forward. And, uh, and we are the infrastructure, so we can, we can do this work. So that's absolutely correct. Eric, to finish up our time together. Now we all know that last year it was, uh, giantly sucked in many, many ways. Uh, and, I think all artists all out of all over the world lost something, be it a project, be it funding, be it just a little bit of spirit. Um, but you are talking about starting to rebuild. Tell us some things that you're working on at the moment. I'll talk you through one project because it's so exciting that all the pieces are finally together. The state of Vermont in the US miraculously passed a law that high school students don't get grades. And in order to graduate from high school in Vermont, you have to demonstrate creative capacity. So we have lined That's up. That's it. I'm moving to Vermont. This is, no this is it's game changing. So we've got this series of events now where uh, communities come together, led by their young people, to have conversation. These are small, poor towns, rural towns, come together to decide their, their vision for social and environmental justice in their town. They together craft their vision for their town. They are guided by a BIPOC uh, muralist to create a mural that captures that. All the murals come together in the state capitol for a day of sharing these visions from around the state. Then they go back to their towns and the young people facilitate the work that translates the, the vision held in the mural into action in their town led by the teenagers of that town and all and we're doing the preparation of people that are need to lead these things all along the way and then it takes off on its own energy and I've never seen all the pieces come together quite in this way and it's going to be annual it'll happen every year that sounds 
absolutely amazing. That sounds like everybody's getting involved, getting their hands dirty, and it's going to create something beautiful for the community as well. It really is the best of what we do. It is. It feels like it. And to be old and to be at the beginning of something that's going to become a statewide tradition, it feels pretty damn great. Eric, I've loved talking to you, but you've got to drop this old thing. I'm looking here because I've got the vision on the screen. I'm looking at a young dynamic man who's still who's still world changing and, and leading and things like that. Maybe a field elder. Maybe we might accept uh, that if we can uh, use one of those terms, but definitely not old. Eric Booth, thank you so much for joining me on Why Change. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Why Change. Rachel, that was a fantastic interview with Eric. I love just your enthusiasm. You're clearly so excited to be chatting with someone. Tell us a little bit about your biggest takeaways. What stood out to you in this dialogue? There's just so much information. What are the, the two things that we should walk away with? Oh, thanks for that, Jeff. Well, firstly, that's really kind. Uh, it was super enjoyable as well. The things that I took away from this conversation was how much there is left to do and how much the field has evolved. So some of the challenges that Eric was faced with when he was first setting up this conversation about teaching artistry and at the beginning of the interview, I love that he talks about his own personal journey that he was you know, doing high-level Broadway shows and things like that. Um, but the kind of fulfilment that he was getting through an educative process was something that turned him on in a totally different way. I love how he describes that journey. But the challenge that he, that he faced at the time uh, in the past are quite different to the challenges that we face right now. And so some of those, those challenges are how do we amplify marginalise and minority voices? How do we ensure that our fellow teaching artists are going to keep being having viable work options? How do we encourage tenacity in our field and things like that? So it's not just um, getting that foot in the door, it's to keep perpetuating successful practice, whatever that means to you in your corner of the globe. So I think, I guess, the rate of change that Eric has witnessed is quite phenomenal and it makes me wonder about what challenges are there for us in the future in arts and in arts education that we haven't even anticipated yet. Um, so like most people, I didn't think we'd be sitting here in the middle of a global pandemic, but here we are. So what do we need to, I guess, you know, I, I can't stand these corporate phrases like future-proofing, but what can we do to put ourselves in the best position that we can um, because we know that the arts has so much to share with the world. Um, so what can we do to ensure that our practice is robust and that it is ongoing and it is inclusive? Absolutely. You know, it's really interesting, those questions that you pose around the future-proofing, not to use the term, but to use the term <laughs> of the field, are, are really important. And I think back to about a year ago, uh, probably exactly a year ago, actually, in, in late April 2020, I was invited after doing a, a study um, on the future, to a bunch of conversations on the future of supporting teaching artists, because what we found in our quick response survey that went out as the pandemic took hold in the United States was that 
teaching artists were largely viewed as the most vulnerable members of the arts education field because of inconsistent employment, lack of healthcare benefits in the United States, um, and the populations um, and communities in which they're working were facing um, the COVID-19 crisis at an exponential rate compared to other, other communities. And so it was really interesting because everything you just described was the microcosm of our weekly conversations for months with this group of leading teaching artists because we all had that privilege. We all were saying, oh, I identify as a teaching artist, but I'm full-time employed, or I identify as a teaching artist, but you know, I did that after a successful other career, or um, you know, I would like to navigate this, but I'm operating in New York City where there is a union for teaching artists in lots of other places there are not. And it was so interesting to just watch this conversation evolve because we were trying to put out a call to action around COVID-19 response, particularly around funding, but simultaneously little success stories were popping up in San Diego and Chicago and other places around the country. And then truly it stopped dead in its tracks because we saw the first civil uprisings responding to police violence against black and brown communities and we said, you know, we have to be all inclusive. We have to look at the intersectionality. We have to look at how we can sort of elevate all of it. And truly what it did is I watched it in real time be a changing of the guard where truly a lot of these folks that were viewed as leaders that came from these positions of privilege were no longer the most appropriate people to be writing these calls to action. And just to watch something like that happen in this small little microcosm of what was actually happening on a large scale international um, uh, viewpoint was just so interesting. And I think that that is sort of the lesson out of this story, as you were saying, of watching the teaching artist field evolve over time across the world that we should be thinking about, we should be interrogating, we should be uh, navigating as we move towards the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess to bring it back to Eric, Eric to me is somebody, you are absolutely right, that we questioned whose voices were being heard and why and who we were elevating and were they the best people to have the conversation. Um, Eric to me is one of the people who has used their privilege to open up spaces for dialogue and things like that. And I think that Eric very much has a no bullshit approach. He calls out the field for when it missteps, he um, pushes us to go further. Uh, he often identifies gaps and things like that, whether they are, look, the arts was supposed to, um, you know, improve people's empathy. Why do we have such a massive empathy chasm um, when it comes to black and brown people and police violence and things like that? I really think that his ability to use that, his privilege to to, to magnify the conversations and, you know, amplify voices that should be heard is also really admirable. And, and I think that we need that voice of conscience in our field, the, the conscience that sits on our shoulder and says, we can't just sit there and say, right, yeah, the arts are great for us. Um, he does also look at, well, where have we failed? And that's a hard conversation. Certainly, and I think he's done a great job too of planting those seeds in people to sort of grow. Uh, you know, he wrote a book that was called Tending the Perennials and it's sort of this interesting exploration of his journey and, and you can read it, but the idea of perennials 
being something that are cultivated is is interesting to me because I think one can cultivate it in yourself, which certainly he he talks about, but it can also be cultivated in, in other people. And when we talk about that idea of eldership, as we were discussing earlier, it really strikes a chord of where are those exemplars of eldership? And I think Eric has done a great job, and he talks about this a little bit too, of, of planting those seeds and sort of perpetuating this. And, and one of those seeds I would say, um, if, if it's not too cheeky, is you. You know, you've done a lot of the same field building that he has done um, in Australia. And I know it was just announced that there's a new uh, initiative that you're helping to co-lead in Australia and the Pacific to network together teaching artists. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, this is so exciting, Jeff. And look, you make a really good point. So this would actually have never happened, I I don't think, or I would have never been involved if I hadn't made that trip to New York to find out, um, I guess, about teacher artistry and uh, the growth, that the potential for growth that there is, particularly in my region. region. So let me tell you about APTAN, A. E-T-A-N, the Australia Pacific Teaching Artist Network. So it sits with ETAC, uh, the International Teaching Artist Collaborative, and it is, I guess, our regional chapter. So we're here in the Pacific that includes Australia, New Zealand and Pacific Island nations. And there are people actively working here as teaching artists, and some people don't use that term. Um, they might use community artists or arts educators or things like that. But we have a lot of people working in that field. And at the moment, there's lots of professional associations, but there's not really an umbrella organisation for teaching artists. And there's nothing that helps people identify as a teaching artist or have solidarity between each other. It is designed to complement the many excellent professional associations that we do have. I'm a member of pretty much all of them, like Dance and Drum Australia and ASME and, and things like that. But it's designed to strengthen the conversation around teaching artistry. So one of the questions that we ask on our Facebook page is, do you need a teaching artist? What, you know, what goes on in your workplace or your community group? Do you need an artist there? Um, and we ask people, are you a teaching artist? If you're educating and, you know, you've got artistry at the heart, then have a read of some of this stuff. So we're about to have our launch event, which is really exciting, Brad Hazeman. Uh, the renowned drama educator is going to be one of our keynote speakers. We're also going to have First Nations speakers from Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific. Uh, we are most definitely going to invite some of our teaching artist friends from the Pacific uh, to come and talk to us. And they are voices that really don't often get heard. They can't afford to go to those big fancy conferences like the one that we meet at, Jeff. So it's really about time that we use, I get, we have some more solidarity in our region. And so I'm really excited about APTAN. I want to encourage everyone to go to our website, check us out. Any teaching artist can list themselves on the directory for free, meaning that people can find you and offer you work and can find you and invite you into the community if they think your skill set matches up with something that they need. Uh, you can, of course, follow us on Facebook, look for the posts, read a little bit about teaching artistry and see if it applies to you. That's so exciting. I love hearing this news and these advancements. I've watched similar efforts take place um, in different parts of the, the United States and in other parts of the world, particularly watching the growth um, and the impact of, of ITAC, the International Teaching Artists Collaborative, which we hear a lot of from uh, from Madeline, or a lot about from Madeline. Um, and, you know, it's, um, it's lovely to see that because I think networking together people, which certainly is an objective of mine and, and that of Creative Generation as well, 
is so important because the types of changes that we often hear about in the Why Change podcast or in a lot of our other work as individuals or as a collective come from the fact that people come together, that uh, the idea of connectivity is so essential in being the driving force behind whatever the objective may be. And this project is certainly a testament to that. It totally is because like everything, we're stronger together. But being a teaching artist, as you know, can be a really isolating experience. You might be the only artist working in that context. You might, and it's often really challenging circumstances. It's also places where you need some debriefing yourself, uh, where you might be working with heavy content and things like that. So the mechanisms that we have to support each other, this comes up in the interview as as you know, uh, the mechanisms that we have to support each other are kind of weak. So here's just one small thing that we can do to show solidarity between ourselves as artists. I totally agree. And to to hearken back to your interviewee, Eric Booth, he is one of those great connectors. Um, how he does it, I don't think I don't think the man sleeps. Um, but I know he has been a great mentor to me, both in terms of uh, providing opportunity or connections or um, contributing in ways that are really beneficial, but also being that true mentor, you know, giving me that that swift kick in the ass when I need it to get motivated or to do something or um, to correct when I might have misstepped. And and I, I so appreciate that. And it's certainly something that I would love to channel in my life um, with folks that that I work with or with sectors that I I impact. So I'm glad that you got to have this conversation and I'm really excited that Eric got to be on the podcast and for all of our listeners to be able to enjoy. Um, so this brings us to a close for today's episode, Rachel. Tell me what's next. It'll be a little while before we talk again. So what do you have coming up in your world? There is so much going on. Uh, well, firstly, I'm actually going to get to New Zealand myself. So I, uh, I'm definitely not trying to rub it in for some of our friends who are not able to travel at the moment, but we have just opened the Australia-New Zealand travel bubble. So I'm actually planning on going to see some of my colleagues in New Zealand uh, and to see some artistry at work, which is really, really exciting. Um, and I think that's going to be, you know, a great reconnection of hearts and minds and things like that because we um, do reach, as we say, across the ditch often and we've really missed each other. So that's really exciting. More is happening on the podcast front as well. Um, so one of my next podcasts is going to be all about Australian women um, and in in the arts, people who are doing big and beautiful projects with Aboriginal dance, um, amazing work with community singing um, and things that really provide uh, you know, a much needed lift to people's lives at this very, very challenging junction in in our lives and in and in world politics and everything like that. So I, I really can't wait to have those interviews and share them with you. Well, excellent. I'm very excited to hear them. I myself will not be traveling to New Zealand or even to our neighboring <laughs> Canada. Um, but I, you know, it's interesting. I used to be the person that traveled all the time and would often be on a plane and bopping around the country or around the globe. And it's fascinating because I think about this last weekend and this coming week, and I will be seeing young people dancing on a stage for their first time on a stage in about a year, which will be really, uh, I think, a, a heartwarming moment. This last weekend, um, I spent celebrating um, a birthday 
at a vineyard, not my birthday, someone else's birthday, but there was live music, which again, just brought me wow. such joy. So I think those, those small arts experiences are really just, it's a nice re-entry into the normal um, as we start to see the light at the end of the tunnel with COVID-19, um, at least in my world. And, and soon, soon enough, uh, we will be traveling again. But I think for the time being, I'm excited about those, those moments of small artistic connection. That's so beautiful, Jeff. If I can just add to that, what has really amazed me is that um, I am, I have my own dance company. It's a Bollywood dance company and classes are full at the moment. Um, all the classes are sold out, which is what's telling me it, is that people see the arts as part of their normal. And I didn't really know that before. I didn't really know that people considered me a sort of essential worker. Uh, people consider this an important intrinsic part of their lives and have just returned to it with such zest and uh, with such love and with such fervor. It really, really means a lot. And I'm really glad that you're able to witness that. I, I know that you're going to cheer really loud when you see those little ones on stage or the big ones or whoever it is on stage. When you see that moment, I just think that your heart's going to leap for joy. Absolutely. And it, it also leapt for joy. And if, if we can share this on the, the episode show notes, the video that your uh, your crew produced um, of the Bollywood dance uh, by the bridge, it was wonderful. It was so great to see that that true, um, you know, connection that people were bringing to their artistic expression, whether they started taking class a few days ago or years ago. Um, so, I, yes, I think everyone making art in the ways that they can um, is is part of this recovery. Recognizing artists as those essential workers is part of our recovery. And certainly as we think about recovery and think about the new normal, if I dare say that, the next chapter perhaps that we're going into, that we ask some of those big questions that you are posing throughout this episode to think about where we go and how we go there in the best way. Absolutely. It's been a tough road, but hang in there, everyone, because because we're needed. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. That does bring us to a close for today. We will see you all next time. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. If you would like to support this podcast aimed at amplifying the voices of creative changemakers around the world, please consider donating through the link located in the episode's show notes. These show notes contain all sources discussed in the episode. Be sure to follow, like, subscribe, and share the Why Change podcast to make sure you and your networks get episodes delivered directly to you and that you don't miss any stories of creative work happening around the world. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Also, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at info at creative-generation.org. We would love to hear your ideas, the topics you want to learn about, and why change matters to you. Our show is produced and edited by Daniel Stanley. Our music is by Distant Cousins. A special thanks to our contributors, co-hosts, and the team at Creative Generation for their support. Wow.